Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a series called Fields of Harvest. Um, we are reading through the Bible together as a church. And as we're reading through the Bible, it's called The Journey. Each month we pick a book and kind of preach through it. And this particular month, uh, since we're looking at Paul let, Pauline letters, we're looking at uh, a lot of little letters together. So we're looking at Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Fields of Harvest is what the title is. Basically what we're doing is we're looking at... Thessalonians deals with some end time stuff. So we're looking at who Christ was. We saw that last week in Colossians 1, 1 through 15, 1, 15 through 20, which I said, hey, you should try to memorize. My wife and I are trying to do it. It's been a riot this week. Um, you should memorize those things about Jesus and the Christ hymn, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian um, and how that looks. And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian kind of in community and then we get into eschatology over those next two weeks. I may or may not preach one of those eschatology sermons. I'd love to. But we have a baby due in three weeks. So somebody else might get the pleasure of talking about end times other than me. So um, we'll see how that works out. Um, we'll see how the Lord providentially makes that thing come about. So uh, we're going to be in Colossians, as I said, starting at chapter 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 20. Um, or... You can look underneath you. There's all these blue and white ones. Just take that blue and white one uh, and keep it. It's yours. Uh, And you can open up to Colossians. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you get uh, into the Pauline letters after Romans. Um, And there's this little uh, GE power company is how I I remember it. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. (coughs) The company's the CO Colossians. So anyway, that's that's old school Bible drill back in fifth grade in 85. So... um, you can do that if you want, but if I invite you to open up to uh, Colossians chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Um, and I'm going to give you all the outline before we get started so you can kind of see it. Um, I won't give you the actual points, but I'll give you at least in the text the outline. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump in starting at chapter 2, verse 20. We're actually going to go all the way to 317. It's kind of a big chunk, um, but it was a short sermon last time, so it should be a short sermon this time. Shorter sermon ish sermon. Let's pray. God, thank you for your, uh, your love and your mercy that you give us to us in Christ. I pray that as we, as we look at this particular text, we'll remember what we saw last week as we talked about Christ and who he is, um, all these amazing things about Jesus that we saw, 15 amazing truths about Christ and who he is. And we realize our lives that we see that we're supposed to live and what it means to be a believer are all foundationally found in who Christ is first. Be with us now, God, as we look at your word. I pray that it would have its promised work and effect on all of our lives, that people that don't know Jesus would come to know Christ, those that superficially know Christ, as this text actually addresses, would see it as superficial and and would die to Christ and be raised with Christ and really be believers in Jesus. I pray for those that are walking with you, that they would be strengthened in the faith. Pray for myself, Lord. There's say this all the time, but there's literally no way that I can preach unless it's by your power and by your spirit. And so I pray for your help. You'll speak through me the things that are particularly helpful. Um, This service compared to last that you would help me say those things, things that aren't that you would keep me from it. And Lord, that you would use this to strengthen us all in the faith. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So the title of the sermon is Paul's devastating attack on a superficial grasp of the power of grace. So, in the church in Colossae, there was a growing 
superficial, false, um, kind of half-hearted understanding of what the gospel means or what the gospel of grace should mean. And in this particular city, there were people that were coming in that were saying, well, we're trying to install or bring in man-made contrived philosophies. And these man-made institutions, philosophies are, are vastly important and you need to know these things. And they may even be equal with or maybe even more superior than the gospel. And Paul is attacking these things. You can see Paul in Colossians 2.8 bring up that very subject. Um, so I said we're in 2.20. If you look up, you know, 12 verses uh, in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So now Paul's not speaking out against philosophy like philosophy in our day, 21st century categories. Paul doesn't think in 21st century categories because Paul didn't live in the 21st century. So Paul's not against philosophy. Um, in and of itself. It's a good subject, good discipline, you should study it. But what he's saying is that the empty philosophies um, or the empty deceits of man-made institutions that try to achieve salvation, he's attacking those things. And so we're going to see that, how he's, how he's going to do that. Now let me let, me let you see um, what are kind of the big pieces here, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Um, it's really good for us to read, not just kind of as you, in your daily Bible reading, not just a verse or two and let that be your devotion of the day. It's good to kind of read a chapter or two at a time and then you can get to see what the writer, in, in this particular instance, Paul, is trying to do. Um, and markers of words are really good for you because if you see the, the big markers of words, you can see, okay, there's the first point how he's trying to take me to the next point and how I'm supposed to do it. So I'm going to show you those so you can see it. You can see kind of what are the the four particular things that we're going to look at today, and then you'll be able to follow. So 220, notice how he starts this out, 220, and how similar um, language is used as we're going through. 220, if with Christ you died. So this big idea of dying with Christ, if with Christ you died, now look over at 3.1. Now he's going to, in a contrast, say, then you have been raised with Christ. So you can see 2.20 and all that follows is an idea about dying with Christ. 3.1 through 3.4 is that next contrast. If you've died with Christ, 3.1, you've been raised with Christ. And since that's happened, then what does that mean? Well, you can see how it looks. 3.5, put to death or take off these particular things. 312 and put on these particular things. So you can see how these big markers, as you read over a, a chapter or two, you can see what Paul's doing. You've died with Christ, therefore, you've been raised with Christ, therefore. So take off these particular things and put on these particular things. That's, that's kind of Paul's way of attacking the superficial gra- grasp of grace in the church in Colossae and for us as well, as we pull out those principles and look at it for the church in America. And so that's where we're going. And as we, as we look at it, um, once we get to it, there's, there's the first two are kind of two truths that Paul uses to attack that superficial grace, grasp of grace. And then the next two, 3.5 and 3.12, are the two directions that he gives us in order to attack a superficial grasp of grace. But before we do that, I want to talk about why this is important. So... This is why this is going into a text of understanding why a superficial grasp of grace is essential. Because this is not just something that was happening in the first century. It's not that just first century Christians had the tendency towards having a superficial understanding of what it means to be Christian. 
we do as well. This is a Pew Research that just came out. If you follow any, you know, well-known pastors in America, this research came out back in May. And then, you know, everybody's been going crazy trying to address it, trying to talk about what we can do, what can we do as Christians. So um, the Pew Research showed this, that in uh, 2007, 78% of people in America called themselves Christian. I mean, that's astounding. Think about that. 350 million people or so in America, 78% of people called themselves Christian. But the Pew Research showed that that was in 2007. Seven years later, 71% called themselves Christian. So we've gone down from 78 to 71. Along the same lines, the nuns have increased. And that's not N-U-N, that's N-O-N-E-S. That's the, I don't know what I believe. Um, that's, the nuns have increased. It's not like we got a bunch of... Um, Catholics, nuns. So anyway, 56 million Americans have now um, say that they do not observe any religion. So the N-O-N-E-S nuns went from 16% up to 23. So in seven years, those that call themselves Christian have gone from 78% to 71. And those that would say, I am either agnostic or or, or whatever, um, they've said that they have increased from 16 to 23 But even with those statistics, Pew Research says this, um, United States still remains home to more Christians than any other nation with roughly, since it's 71%, 7 in 10 continuing to identify with some branch of Christianity. So 7 out of 10 people in America will call themselves Christian. Now, we would think that's the South, right? But out of 350 million people in America... Seven out of ten, according to Pew Research, would say that they're still Christians, that they are Christians. And that's in any branch. So that, in, that includes even like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, which I think aren't Christians, that are cults. Um, so, uh, so here's what this means then. If seven out of ten people call themselves Christian, just think, in, even in the South, with the seven out of ten people that you interact with, do we really believe that those seven out of ten are believers? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, would, I would venture to say half. Half of that are actually Christians in America. I'm not God. I can't judge. Yada, yada. I know all that. Say it. It's good. But my point is this. If seven out of ten people think they're Christians, likely a superficial grasp of Christianity that's present in the Colossian church is certainly needed to be addressed today in America. Because it just seems astounding that seven out of ten, seven out of ten people are truly Christians in America, and our moral compass is where it is. It just seems impractical. So what's going on? Likely, and as as they did the research, if you read the entire article, the the drop of those are in churches that um, would not hold to inerrancy. Um, so in churches that would be more non-conservative, if you will. And so all that is, is just they're saying, you know what? The way I live my life and the things that I hold to and believe, um, I don't necessarily agree with the things that this Bible says with the way I think should be. So I'm not really a Christian. And so it's a good, it's kind of a weeding out of those, I think, that would call themselves Christians that aren't. Um, but... What this particular text does, I think, is for those that still call themselves Christians, 7 out of 10, it provides another um, 
biblical filter for us to really decide, am I walking with Christ or not? Am I really in Christ or not? So that's what this particular text does. It's a devastating attack on superficial grasp of the power of grace. Or, to just say it really easily, um, as we hear these texts, as we see what Paul says, it helps us decide, out of that 70% that call themselves Christians in, in, in America, am I really a believer? Or am I just saying I'm a believer because my parents said I'm a believer? Because their parents said that they're a believer? Because that's what I think I should do. Or, hell sounds terrible, so how do I not go there? Oh, Christianity, that's what I want. Like th- That's superficial grasps. Of, so we're going to talk about what it means to become a Christian. We're going to talk about what, it, what, what that entails. So Paul's devastating attack on a superficial grasp. So the, the, what, here's the attack. There's two truths and two directions. The two truths are 2.20 and 3.1 and those particular verses afterwards. The two directions are 3.5 and 3.12 and what that means. So here we go. That's the whole sermon, by the way. So feel free to pay attention. I still love it. We've got good coffee makers out here now. That everything's working, so go get some of that and bring it back. The inaugural brew on the new coffee makers were Starbucks. So it's some good stuff over there. I won't be offended. I would go get it right now if I were you. So, but I have it right here. So um, 220. 220. If with Christ you died. Thank you, Brantley. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits. So here's 220. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all the things, to to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's just kind of neglect of the body, making yourself uh, weak and, and fasting and thinking that that is going to earn some kind of um, right standing with God. Look at me, God. I neglect myself. I don't do anything that you wouldn't want. I, I'm, I'm an ascetic. A severity to the body as it follows. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence to the flesh. You can, as, as an unbeliever, you can practice asceticism and indulge your, or, or make everything severe to your body. But in the end... That's doing nothing in regard to stopping the indulgence of sin. It does nothing. So, as we read that, here's what we're going to do. So, all these four points have bigger words, and that's on purpose, and they're alliterated because I want them to be remembered. So, the first two kind of have a little bit of alliteration. The second two are ridiculously, nerdily, that's not a word, alliterated. Um, So, here's the first one. Here's the first truth. Remember, there's two truths, two directions. The first truth is, you have died to the legalistic notions of achieving salvation. That's basically what he's trying to say. In Colossae, they're practicing these human philosophies, these empty traditions, and they're thinking that those things um, give for them. Do not, like, okay, I don't handle, I don't taste, I don't touch. I practice these asceticism, these severity to my bodies. I'm doing man-made, created things. And since I'm doing those things, those things achieve for me right standing or salvation. And what the gospel is saying, or what Christ is saying is, you died and man-made creations don't save. Instead, God has determined how salvation happens and he is the one that gives salvation. So the first truth that we need to see is, legalistic notions or practicing man-made created things to think that that gives us a right standing. Just in other words, to make it real simple, 
Practicing good works to think that that is going to give you a right standing with God does not give you a right standing with God. After you come to Christ, you should do good things. They're self-appointed. They've been appointed by God, Ephesians 2.10. But they do not earn salvation. And the reason why, the way Paul wants us to think, the way he wants to destroy the superficial grasp of the gospel, who thinks, yeah, Jesus sounds good, so I'll just do good stuff the rest of my life. He's saying, no. The truth is, you've died with Christ. Count yourself as dead. Piper means convert. Piper says, conversion, John Piper, conversion means death. If you don't die with Christ, you don't believe on Christ. That's the meaning of becoming a Christian. Death in Christ. You have died. Bonhoeffer, he's a, uh, a guy that lived in World War II. Um, opposing the Nazis. He says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So he doesn't bid him come and do good works, come perform these legalistic notions in order to have a good relationship with God. He bids him and he helps him understand that for those that believe in Jesus have to reckon or count themselves as dead. We come to Christ and we die. And we don't try to practice legalistic notions or man-made of creations to think that achieves salvation. Calvin attacking that idea of of practicing man-made things for salvation says, true worship of God, true piety, and the holiness of Christians does not consist in these things, meaning like drink and food and clothing, which are things that are transient, liable to corruption, and perish by abuse. Human traditions, man-made creations, are just a labyrinth in which consciences can get more and more entangled, but don't lead to salvation. That's that's me, not not Calvin. Um, Once persons have taken upon these things, They tyrannize men's souls. And there's no end of new laws being added daily to the old laws. This is what man-made salvation does. It does not save. So therefore, Paul's truth, Paul's teaching is, don't try to have legalistic notions of salvation. Instead, count yourself as dead to Christ. So what it means to to come to know Christ is this. Colossians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when I become a believer, I died. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. And he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So destroying any legalistic notion of superficially in name only saying that you're a believer and now you can kind of just do whatever you want as long as you try to practice, you know, being a good man or a good woman for the rest of your life and that's what makes you all right with God, like some kind of scale of justice. Paul destroys that and says, these ways are not the way to Christ. You died. The second part of truth where we get to three one says this, if then you have been raised. So if you've died and if you have been raised, we're going to see what the other thing is, but the next truth we have to know is that we've been raised with Christ. 
You have been raised with Christ. And what have we been raised out of? He lists these things where he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. That means sinful patterns. Um, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ was your life appears, then you also appear with him. So the second thing I want you to see is this. You have been raised out of, big word I know, licentious behavior. That just means sinful. And I use the L just to... Make you remember legalism and licentiousness. So you have been raised out of licentious behavior and been given new life in Christ. You died with Christ and you died to legalistic notions of achieving salvation. And after that, you've been raised out of that life and you've been raised out of licentiousness or sinful behavior as well. So what's true of you is legalism doesn't save. Licentiousness is not your path either. So you've kind of got these these two paths going down of legalism and licentiousness and neither one of them will ever bring salvation. Neither one of them are God glorifying but instead you have in the middle road, the middle road of the path of the gospel. This is Luke chapter 15. The, the parable of the prodigal son. You've got the older son that tries to go the legalistic route. You've got the younger son that goes the licentious route and neither one of them in the end are walking the road towards salvation. Instead, it's by faith in Christ. So you have been raised out of licentiousness or sinful behavior and been given new life in Christ. You have to count yourself dead and be dead in order to be raised. That's pretty common. That's, I think, hopefully helpful understanding. We as Christians are not just poof, life in Christ. We must die first in order to have been raised and have life in Christ. So, notice this. Remember, in in Colossae, they had these philosophies, man-made kind of ways to be saved. And what he says is, um, he says, you've been raised with Christ, therefore. This is what's pretty astounding. Notice he doesn't tell us here that you've been raised with Christ. Now, you're totally free to keep laws and rules. It's not what he says. He says, now you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. And he says it again in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above. So he doesn't say, now that you've been raised with Christ, now go attack those rules and love rules. He still points you away from earthly things into heaven and says, seek the things that are above. Now that feels... Subjective. We're going to talk about it because Paul knows that subjective. And he gives us huge, massive handles to grab onto and know what that means in 3.5 and 3.12. But he, he still doesn't point you to earth. Set your minds on the things that are earth actually points you away. Not on the things that are on earth. So count yourself dead. Count yourself raised. Let's just say it as simply as we can. For, for those that are like... But I'm, I'm a simple, and I'm simple, I'm a simpleton. I just need for you to say it. But what does that mean? I'm the same way. This is what it means. Pursue Jesus with everything you have. You've been dead. Count yourself dead. You've been raised with Christ. Now, rules don't save. Following moral behavior patterns don't bring you closer to Jesus. He likes that we aren't sinful, of course. But instead of concentrating on those things, what do I not do? What do I do? What do I not do? What do I do? Pursue Christ. Fixate on Christ. Pursue Him. When you do that, 
The following of the rules aren't like, you, what do I do? Do I do this? I don't know. Let's put them in front of me. What is this? Just throw those things out. You'll die trying to do that. Pursue Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And moral patterns of behavior take care of themselves as I pursue Christ. It seems that if we look at Christ rather than ourselves and try to figure out how to live for Christ, we will live, live for Christ. Rather than guessing for, what well, does he want me to do this or should I do that? That seems, I mean, rated R movies, I don't know. Drinking alcohol, I don't know. Just pursue Christ and when you do, you'll figure out these, I think, bottom level things. You'll figure those things out. And I'm not going to make a rule on either one of those things. So, here it says, set your minds on the things that are above. I, I think if you just set your mind on the things that are above or seek the things that are above, in almost 99% of the cases, you'll know in that moral decision what to do. What would Christ have me do in this situation? This is a great question to ask. Because the truth is, and he tells us, in 3.3, he reminds us of 2.20. For, that, anytime you see a four in, a, in the Bible, it's, Paul's making an argument, or the writer. Because, here's why. You have died. Oh, I love this next part of verse 3b. Y'all should, y'all should just love this text. For you have died, and your life is, look at this, hidden with Christ in God. When you died, you're hidden with Christ in God. And then it tells you again in verse 4. When Christ, he's going to talk about his appearing. We'll get to that in a second. But here it says, when Christ, who is your life? So what he's trying to throw out as truth to you is this. You've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And because of that, then you are hidden with Christ. And Christ is your life. Calvin says, no one can rise with Christ if he has not first died with him. We must be dead that we may be able to live. And what I fear, and that's 7 out of 10. And look, I'm not just trying to stand and cast judgment upon the 7 of 10. I do this hard work on my own self. Every single one of us needs to do the hard work on my own self. Have I superficially thought that I can skip number one and just jump over to two and think I have life in Christ? I think that that's what's going on with seven out of ten people thinking that they're believers. And yet our nation's moral compass seems to just kind of been thrown out the window. Right? If we're really pursuing the things that are above, it seems like some of the things that happen in our own lives. Let's just not talk about this. In our own lives wouldn't be happening. So, the truth is that we have to think about this. You have died. Christ is my life. So here's the way I think that Paul, therefore Jesus, wants us to think. If verse 220 is true, with Christ I died, and now I've been raised with Christ, I I don't have a life. I think that's how he wants us to think about it. I don't have a life. You don't have a life. It sounds really mean and I'm not trying to make it sound like in the, in the mean kind of put down sense that we would say when we're in the middle school playground. You don't have a life. In other words, it's, it's biblically, you don't have a life in and of yourself anymore. Instead, you died You have been raised with Christ and therefore your life is hidden and inside of and Christ is your life. Verse 4. Your life, it's not that you don't have a life, it's that your life is in Christ now. 
That's the point of 3-4. When Christ, who is your life? Who is my life? Christ is my life. I don't have a life. Jesus is my life. The only place I find life is only in Christ. Nothing is dependent upon me. I should not try to live my life, therefore, in my own sinful pleasures, my own patterns. Instead, I am now Christ's possession. He owns me. If I'm a Christian, he owns me. That's how the Bible speaks. It says we're his possession. Christ is my life. Jesus is my life. Jesus is your life. We are hidden with him now. I don't think anything could be more beautiful in the world than this superficial thoughts that I might have being completely obliterated by Jesus and showing me that my life isn't mine anymore, but instead it's Jesus's. And therefore, I'm supposed to live for him. So we count ourselves dead. And that's a joyous thing that finally John Chambers died. And then he was given life in Christ and raised. So those are the two truths that Paul takes and attacks us and says, superficial Christian. If this didn't happen, you got to go back to, to, to the drawing board. You got to go back to step A. You didn't become a Christian. And then, for those that are still (laughs) weeded out through the filter, that still stand as believers, okay, I am a believer. I might practice superficial Christianity, but I am a believer. And there's, there's people that were superficial Christians, and they have to go back to say, Christ, I need to die. I need to really become a Christian. I don't know who you are right now. You can be one of those two. If you're the first, then go back to 220, trust in Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, believe in Jesus, die with Christ, be raised with Christ. And then you're with us all right here where we are. We're left with this direction in 3.1 and 3.2 that says, set your minds on things above, set your minds on, um, set set your mind on the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. And I said, that's subjective. What does that mean? And now we're going to, Paul is, we're going to look at what does that mean? Because I know that that sounds like, okay, what does that mean? I'm thinking of Jesus. Like, I don't even know what it looks like. That's what, is that what I'm supposed to do? I've never been to heaven. Set my mind. What does that mean? He's going to tell us. So now we've come to a place where in 3.5 and 3.12, he's going to show us what it means to set our minds on the things that are above. And in doing that, he's going to tell us things that we need to take out of our lives and things that we need to put onto our lives. We have to say this. I know I've led us up to this point and I've said it in a lot of different ways, but I have to say this. If you practice the taking off and the putting on without having done those first two truths, all you're doing is just returning back to legalistic notions of achieving salvation. So don't think that just because you're doing these things and it's not foundationally found in the fact that you've died and been raised and that you're just doing them, you're going through the motions, that you're achieving salvation. You're not. You're going right back to over to 220. You're trying to do man-made um, teachings that think that achieve salvation for you. So these things are exclusively for Christians. Not even superficial Christians. Exclusively for regenerate, following hard after Christ, setting my mind on the things of Christ, pursuing Jesus with everything I have. This is what they should do. Any other person is legalistically following through motions that don't save. So here we are. What does it mean then for us to set our minds on things that are above? This is what it means. 
3, 5, put to death. Said maybe as plainly as I can. Since you died, other things have to die. Since you died, your sins have to die. That's what he's telling you. Put to, Paul, therefore Jesus, is using the most extreme language that he can to show his absolute hatred of indwelling sin in the life of the Christian. Wanting you to see, if you continue in this, you are a faker, a superficial faker. He's using, hey, think about these things. No, put to death. This is what we're supposed to take off. Let's just put up point three. So therefore, put to death or take off all forms of sin in your life. And this is the ridiculous alliteration. With violent vigilance and vehemence. There's V's in the next one too, just for fun. All right, so when we say violent vigilance, I realized I should have switched vehemence and vigilance. Vehemence is like the most extreme hatred you could have. So sin in your life, put it to death. How am I going to put it to death? The first thing I'm going to do before I start is, like God, I'm going to hate it. I'm going to have extreme vehemence for it. That's the only way I think we'll accomplish it, that we'll do the, the actual killing of it, is that I hate it like God hates it. I'm not okay with it. It's not good that it's there, and I hate it like God hates it. I'm going to have vehemence, extreme hatred for it. And as I have that hatred, the way that I'm going to take off is with violent vigilance. Vigilance is like watchfulness. I'm going to be as angrily violent as I can to put it to death. That's the way God wants you to attack killing your sin. Now, we got to be super careful here. Because I can get into, uh, we can get into when we say that. It's all up to you. Do it on your own power and strength. Therefore, you get the glory. That's not what, what we want. We don't want the glory for this. We want all the glory to go to God for anything that we do. Galatians 6, uh, just verse 14. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So if there's any boasting, it's not because I killed sin. That I don't ever want to boast. The only thing I want to boast about is that Jesus died for me. I don't ever want to be able to boast, hey, I killed that sin. I want God to be able to say, you killed that sin by the power of the Spirit, and that's how it got killed. Wasn't on you just white knuckling it and saying, well, I'm super dedicated. That's how I killed it. So put to death, we're going to talk about how that even can be man-centered and not God-centered, this directive. So talking about superficial Christianity, we got those first two truths. The first direction to us all, kill it. Since you died, other things must die. Now, Paul's going to give us some lists. In this particular list in 3, 5 through 3, 11, this is not exhaustive. He's being as broad as he can. He might not list your sin that, that you are tempted with. He might not list it. Therefore, don't fa- find this as, well, that's not, I'm not on the list. I'm good. <laughs> Everything on here and whatever it is you know that you're, you're dealing with, kill it. Here's the list. Therefore, what is put to death, anything that's earthly. Now, ah, I don't have time for that. Um, earthly. That just means sinful. Doesn't mean hate the world. People in the world, we got to love people. Anyway, sexual immorality. I think that that might almost encompass everybody. Impurity, passion, that's, that's, that's lust, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, on account of the wrath of God, all these things are coming. Since you too 
once walked, oh, this is such good gospel language right here. The same kind of ideas in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, um, where he says, this is a big list of Christians, and that's what you used to do, but now in Christ, you've been given this raised out of licentious behavior. Those things aren't true of you. Those things don't enslave you anymore. You don't have to live in that licentious, sinful world. Instead, you've been raised out of it, so you don't have to give in to impurity, passion, evil desire, covetous idolatry, and even more stuff, as he says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. That's kill them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying, that you put, you have to put off the old self with its old practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in its knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So what he's trying to help you see is that you have got to put to death the sin in your life. And there's all kinds of ways that you can do it. You starve something, it'll die. If you are a terrible pet owner and you do not feed your pet, it will die. It will die. So you can take that same principle and you should apply it to your cats. No, I'm just kidding. You can take that same principle and apply it to your sin. There's this sin in my life that tempts me. If I just starve it and never let it have its way, it'll just die. And yeah, that's, that's true. Starve it, it'll die. But we want to be careful here because we're told to put to death. What does that mean? And I don't want for any of us to receive the glory for it. I want the Lord to receive the glory. Romans eight thirteen has a very similar idea, a very similar command. Put to death sin in your life. Romans eight thirteen, which I've probably referenced a billion times with y'all, says this same idea about putting sin to death. But Romans eight thirteen helps us understand how the Lord receives the glory and not us for it. Here's Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So you keep doing those sinful patterns, you'll die. You won't just die with Christ, you'll die spiritually and be in hell forever. But, here it is, here it is. If, there's this little phrase, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God enabled putting to death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds, that's the sins or the misdeeds in the NIV, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Colossians 3, 5, put to death your sins. Romans 8, 13, put to death your misdeeds or sins by the Spirit. So now we're getting a little bit more understanding of I'm supposed to kill sin and it's supposed to be done by the Spirit. So what does that mean? So yes, seeking the things that are above or setting my minds on the things that are above, One way is the sinful patterns, taking them off. But I don't want to do it just because I'm super dedicated and I've got a lot of like um, ability to white knuckle and I'm type A and I can get stuff done. So you give me a task, I'm going to get it done. Kill that, I don't have to have it. That's great. But that, in the end, that might receive, you might receive the glory instead of Christ. But here we have put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. This is what I think it means. It's going to take work. This is going to cause you to do work. This is going to cause you to do, I would say, a good bit of study and hard work. It doesn't just happen. It happens to those that do the work by the Spirit. So if you're wondering if that sin is worth it, I would just say, I hope it's worth the work to put to death the sins in your life because you're supposed to have great vehemence for it. Psalm 119, 
11 or 13. It's either 119 or I could look it up, but it's either Psalm 119, 11 or Psalm 119, 13. One of those two says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Pretty obvious. I have taken all the verses I can that deal with a particular sin and I have stored them up and memorized them for the express purpose of when that temptation comes, I have the word of God in my head, not something I got to go find, but in my head. So whenever that sin comes, the Holy Spirit takes that verse that I have done the work for, sticks it in my head and says, don't do this. And so I have stored up that word so that I might not sin against you. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, whenever we have the, the body of armor, you know, you've got the helmet and the belt and the breastplate and you've got all these things. They're all defensive weapons, but there is one offensive weapon. Only one. The rest of them are defensive. There's one. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the way you wield the sword and kill sin is through memorization. So here's the hard work. Whatever sin it is that you deal with, let's say it's lying. I had a guy in, in college. He lied about everything. Crazy stuff. What'd you eat for lunch? Pizza. When he ate a cheeseburger, I'm like, why would you lie about that? I don't care. I'm fine with either one. Just lied about anything. Weird all the time. His problem was lying. It's just like, why would you lie about that? Um, anyway, so if your deal is lying, you're going to go to the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you're going to find every verse. You can just, we have the internet. Like, it's so awesome now. You can just go into the ESV app and type L-I-E enter. And you get every verse that has to do with lying. And you put it on some kind of digital something on your phone, on your notes, or you get out the old school cue cards and you write down the verses that have to do with lying and you memorize them over and over. And you tell your spouse or your accountability partner or your roommate, I'm memorizing these. I want you to test me and quiz me. So when temptation comes, you have stored up the word of God. This is for those that are ready to work. Vehemence and vigilance. You will not find sin killed in your life if you don't do the hard work for it by the Spirit. And the Spirit's leading you to take the sword. Piper says when he talks about the sword, he said you've got little short knives, little short daggers. Those are, those are like one verse. And you've got the sword. Those are like you know, five to six verses long. You take your knife and you take your sword when that sin comes and you stab it and lop its head off. That's how you kill sin in your life. By the Spirit. So we're told to kill sin. But not in our own strength and not for our own glory. But with Christ, by the power of the Spirit, for His glory. So every sin that is entangling you, you go to the Word, you memorize those scriptures, and you put to death. You starve it, yes. Starving kills, no question. But you also, as it comes, you have this bank of verses in your head that the Holy Spirit reminds you of. Do not lie. That's just right there in the Ten Commandments. It's a big one. Pretty easy to remember. And you have all these things about bearing false witness, all these things about what it means to be a truth teller as a believer, or whatever it is that sin. I mean, there's this big list of sexual morality, impurity, passion, lust, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. All those things have multiple verses in the Bible. You memorize them. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. And Jesus is worth it. He's worth way more than that. So that's the first thing. The first way that you've set your mind on the things above. I'm going to kill things because I'm setting my mind on the things above. I have to do it by the word. The word is crucial. The word is absolutely necessary for me to do this. We're going to see how crucial the word is even on the other side. So 
take off, put to death things. But then in verse 12, he actually tells us to put on things. You don't just take off things and stand there nude. You put on things. I'm not being, you know, lewd here. I'm, I'm being for real. Put on then, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen. So now we're supposed to put on things as well. So point number four. So put on Christ's likeness, and here's the ridiculous V's, with voracious ventures and veracity. Veracity means truth. So what am I going to put on? I'm going to put on true things. I'm not going to put on false things. I'm going to ground everything that I'm going to put on in the word of God. That's why it says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word's key here, not just in taking off, but the word's key in putting on. That's why I say over and over to all of us, it's not just like the pastorly thing to say, hey, you need to read your Bible. Really good for you. Like, it's the Lord saying it's absolutely crucial for you to not live a superficial Christian life, that you have the word grounded to take off things and the word grounded to put on these Christ-like things because you've died and you've been raised. The word is far more important and superior in your life than it probably should, that you probably think it is. So here, we're going to do it with veracity, with truth. Ventures is just like, you know, a, a, an adventure, doing something. So we're going to be vigilant. We're going to voraciously try to put these things on with truth. So here's what God, God through Paul says. Put on then. So if you see in, your, in the ESV, it says, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved, put on compassion. I love what Paul does here. Before he tells you what you're supposed to put on, starting with the word compassion, he again reminds you who you are. So the first three things that you see there, put on as God's chosen one's holy and beloved, those are not things you're supposed to put on. Before he tells you what you're supposed to put on, he actually goes back to the gospel of dying and being raised and tells you three essential truths about who you are as the new man. Three descriptions of who you are. And with ever-increasing awesomeness, they are given to us. The first one, he tells you that you are chosen. Before he even tells you what to put on, he needs to know that you're chosen. Listen, I grew up my entire life tiny. In ninth grade, I weighed 88 pounds. So as much as I love football, I liked having a body put together. So I wasn't allowed to play football, right? Um, so in, 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 in back, backyard basketball, backyard football from fifth grade all the way through, it's, we, we, you know, we're all there. Here we are. Pick your captains. There's the 12. So-and-so, 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 so-and-so. Get down to the end. Eh, chambers. Like, oh. So I wasn't chosen. I was just like the leftover guy. I'm over here. I'm on your team. I'm going to try really hard, but you don't think I'm worth it because you picked me last. You didn't choose me. You're stuck with me. Um, that, that's kind of how I grew up, you know, in sports world or whatever. And I don't want you to import that idea into being chosen. You weren't the final leftovers that God said, oh, everybody else is gone and I got to fill up the team. So you can be on the team too. You know, it's grab your stuff, put on your stuff. I guess I'll put you in sometime. That's not it at all. Instead, out of the billions of trillions of people that have ever come through this, through this earth, he has intentionally, intentionally looked down and said, I want you, not on my team, in my family. I'm adopting you as my son and daughter. And you are a member of the family. You don't have to bring the food to the table. You have a seat at the table. You're in the family. Before we're told to put on anything, he's already reminding who you are. Not only that, he says that you're chosen. He says that you're holy. 
set apart for God. I've chosen you and I'm setting you apart for myself. Not for you anymore because you've died and your life's hidden with Christ. And he says that you're holy. This is not dependent. If you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, this declaration of God saying you're holy is not dependent upon your day. You got up late. You cussed the alarm clock. You cussed everybody on the way to work. You cussed your wife because she didn't wake you up. You cussed her when you got back home or whatever. Maybe you don't cuss, but you, you had terrible thoughts at least, right? You didn't read your Bible and then you indulged in sin when you got home because you just felt like you had a bad day. Or you did the exact opposite. You ripped it up. You got up at 5 a.m. and led 15 people to Christ. You read your Bible. You prayed. You went out and did a crusade that afternoon. Your wife led 50 people to Christ because you led her in devotion that morning or whatever. And then by the end, you had a worship service in your house with your kids. And they all fell asleep with pleasant thoughts of Christ until that day. Either one of those, right? The declaration is that you're holy. And God's not more pleased or less pleased with either one in the sense of your declaration of holiness. Certainly the Lord wants us to live more like the second. None of us will ever do that, right? (laughs) Maybe we will and the Lord would do it. It'd be awesome. But you need to know the declaration of holiness is not dependent upon your day. It's dependent upon what the Lord has said. That's, That's amazing gospel. As I said, ascending and amazing awesomeness. Not only are you chosen... Not only are you declared holy, which if it was just those two, I would be completely happy. But you're beloved. The creator of the universe that created the concept of love, who is love, has called you loved by him. Not just chosen, not just holy, but the one that understands love more than anybody has said, I love you. He's called you a son and daughter and loves you more than you could conceive. If it was just that one, find me up. And that's not dependent upon your day. God's not angry at his children. All of that was put on Christ. The wrath of God, as it speaks in verse 6, on account of the wrath of God is coming. That's between Christ for us. And all we have is love. Sure, we receive discipline, loving discipline. That's not wrath. And then he tells you what to put on. Well, sign me up. Like you're not just going to tell me to put these things on and not tell me who I am. Well, if I'm holy, if I'm beloved, if I'm chosen, well, then putting on these things seems to be an easier endeavor. Paul's attacking the superficial Christianity, saying, take off these things. And now he's saying, the second direction is to put on. What am I supposed to put on? Compassion and kindness. Put on compassion. Compassion in the Greek is the the bowels of mercy. Down in the deep parts of your bowels that overflow with mercy towards people. That's what he wants you to put on. Not that, that's fine. But deep-seated compassion, mercy for people. Put on compassion and mercy. Be merciful in your absolute inmost being. And then out of that grows the fruit of kindness towards other people. He also tells you to put on humility and meekness. Put on humility and meekness. As God's chosen and holy and beloved one, 
with compassionate hearts and kind hearts, you're literally supposed to put on humility and meekness. Meekness is gentleness in your speech towards others. And the way that you're going to have gentleness in your speech towards others is by putting on humility. Realizing that I am no more important than anybody else. I am not proud. Instead, I will take the role of servant here. And as I take the role of servant, that's how I'll be meek. That's how I'll be gentle in how I deal with others. Meek is not weak. Meek is meek. It's gentleness. And then after that, he tells you to put on forbearance and forgiveness. He tells you to put on patience and forgiveness. Patience, bearing with one another, and if anybody has a complaint, forgiving each other. So this idea of one who is chosen, holy, and beloved, that if if you are overflowing with long-suffering patience, the, the forbearance, you become a patient person that's slow to anger, quick to listen, and slow to speak, then you will now become long-suffering with others. And that root of deep-seated patience with others and long-suffering finds its fruit in being a forgiving person. So when your spouse or your roommate or your mom or your dad is still at it with you, the way to continually forgive is be a long-suffering, putting on these things because you are holy, beloved, and chosen. That's how you're supposed to put these things on. But you say, okay, how do I put those things on? How do I do that? In the same way you're supposed to take off, which we know by the power of the word, how do I put them on? Listen. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So because of the love of God that's been given to you, this declaration that you are beloved, that has now made you a conduit of God's love towards others. That's how you'll begin to put these things on. And then you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and read to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. We live a life of thankfulness. In America, I've been to third world countries. It seems like we are far less thankful and far less grateful. And we are exploding with stuff than the people in the third world countries who have nothing and explode in gratefulness and thankfulness. We have our priorities mixed up because we think stuff is what all the world's about. Stuff is not what the world's about. So you don't find your happiness and joy and stuff, but Jesus, and then you are more thankful and grateful. Your world's not over if your iPhone died or fell in water. Didn't happen to me. It's not like a true story. And here's how we do it. You were wondering how do I do it? Verse 16 tells you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Again, the Bible is not just a great suggestion for pastors to tell you. It's the way you live out a non-superficial, fake, non-fake, non-show, Christ-like life. It's centered in on and absolutely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the word of Christ to take off and put on things. And then you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then verse 17 kind of, that's how you put it on. And then verse 17 shows you kind of that last application fruit of what it looks like. I love verse 17. If you need a life verse, like I need a verse that characterizes the way I want to live. This is it. This would be a great one. And whatever you do in both word and deed, 
everything I say and everything I do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every word I speak, I want it to be worshiped to Jesus. Every action I do, I want it to be worshiped to the, to the Lord Jesus. That brings me all the way back to what I said. How do I bring all this? Pursue Christ. Pursue Christ, not moral behavior. Pursue Christ, giving thanks to God through Father, through Him. This is what the, the Lord has called us to. Not fake, superficial showmanship to fool ourselves and those around us to think that we're believers. But instead, every word we say and every deed we have to be worshiped to Jesus. So we're gonna go into a time of worship now. Uh, let me just, if the Lord has spoken to you, if you feel like this is you, you feel like he's directing his word towards you and that you have been living a superficial in name only but not actual belief in Christ trust Christ this morning believe in him find life eternal life and forgiveness if you are a believer but half hearted then I just not me Paul therefore Jesus is pleading with you to live these things out. Count yourself as dead. Count yourself as raised. And therefore now put to death the things that are in your sinful in your life and put on the things of Christ. And then live a life of worship. Let's let that start now as we worship. If you need to think or pray, I just invite you in these next songs that we have to take that time to think and pray. If you need to talk with me, I'll be in the back. I'd love to have a chance to talk with you. If all this is kind of new and you just need to talk about, if you're not a believer and you want to trust Christ this morning, come talk to me. I'd love to tell you how to become a believer in Jesus. Let me pray. And then we'll worship here in song and then we'll go to live lifestyles of worship in our word and deed. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us on our behalf that secures all of these things for us. Pray for us all, Lord, if we have been living a superficial life of Christianity, that those fake showmanship, not real ways would would be over. And that we would come after you with everything we have. That we would do the hard work centered in on by the Spirit and the Word of God of killing sin and putting on compassion and kindness and humility, meekness. Or as you say in verse 1 and 2, setting our mind on Christ. And therefore having our entire life be dominated by worship of Jesus. Be with us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.